You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, episode number 74. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donald Riley. Today on the show, I wanted to discuss several topics at once. So this might be a little bit more stream of consciousness than other episodes where I'm usually reading from one author. Because today, I want to discuss violence, masculinity, capitalism, individualism, Friedrich Nietzsche, (laughs) several topics simultaneously. And the reason for this is to examine and analyze the nature of violence, what it is that in the present tense drives some men to seek it out, where does that that impulse come from? And what is the motivation behind it? Why is it that others recoil from violence and are horrified by conflict as we see today in pop culture? That men more and more are drifting toward dressing like and behaving like and speaking like women, or at least traditional images and attitudes, personality types that we usually associate with the feminine. And is there a relationship between the two? Is there a relationship between personal responsibility and ownership of our lives and victim culture that is so terribly popular at present? So I'm going to talk about Fight Club. I'm going to talk about Nietzsche, talk about masculinity and some other things, like I said, and more of a stream of consciousness, thinking out loud, more so than I normally do. So buckle up, grab something to drink, and let's get after it. If the reality of society today produces fractured individuals, individuals that are dissociated from themselves, then violence, in the context of the book and the movie Fight Club, in my opinion, becomes a way by which those who are alienated, those who are fractured, those who are dissociated from themselves, can experience feeling and almost carve history onto their bodies. Yesterday, I continued with my right arm sleeve for my tattoo. And my little brother, Josh, shout out to Josh, love you. As he's working on this and we're talking about various topics, as often happens when I get tattooed, I ask myself the question, why is it that I endure so much pain and actually pay (laughs) to endure such pain simply to have something carved into my flesh? What is it that originally motivated me to get a tattoo in the first place when I was 18 years old? Why is it that I could not wait to get tattooed as soon as I turned 18? What was it that drove me to get my ears pierced before I was 18? I think first, if I think back, it was my dad's tattoo, American Eagle, with a banner that said USA on it and a flag behind it that he got in Vietnam. Growing up and seeing that on his arm, for whatever reason, I was immediately drawn to that image. I couldn't understand it, but it evoked something in me, something that I could not express in words as a child. And even now, when I think back and I reflect on that, and in my memory, it's a snapshot of his arm and the faded tattoo. It evokes something very raw and primal from me, almost something that is under my emotions, that when I saw it, I immediately knew when I turned 18 years old, I was going to get a tattoo. And I got a tattoo of a tiger on my chest over my heart. Now there is a lot that goes into whether you're aware of it or not. There's a lot that goes into not only what kind of tattoo you ask to have carved into your flesh, but also where it goes. In the East, for example, the Japanese have an entire history of tattooing. And therefore, they have a deep, deep symbology 
a deep philosophy and theology of tattooing. I have a tiger on my forearm. I got it when I was 19. And then my brother Josh, my tattooist, uh, touched it up for me when he did my left arm sleeve. The tiger faces a particular direction on my arm. It faces inward. And in Eastern culture, when the tiger faces inward, that is because he is looking inward, looking as a protector inward at his people, at his family. He is a protector, a defender. If the tiger is looking outward, it's looking out. It's looking at what's coming. But in either scenario, the tiger is the protector, the defender. I didn't know that when I was 19 years old and I got the tattoo. I just knew that I liked tigers and I wanted a tiger on my forearm because I thought it portrayed my spirit. And then later I got calligraphy that says um, tiger, heart, spirit, and uh, soul. But then as I got older, I held off. I, when I was 20, 19 or 20 years old, I got another tattoo on my right arm, on my bicep, which is a dagger going through a heart with a rose wrapped around it, which at the time I just thought looked really cool. Then after the fact found out it means that I'm ready to die, which I thought was ironic considering that within a year or two later I became suicidal and I wanted to die. Then I held off for getting any more tattoos for 20 plus years. When I was 45, I got my entire left arm sleeved with fish and a water theme to represent baptism and my children. Then this past year, I decided to get my other arm sleeved. And this uh, sleeve contains uh, an 18th century Japanese woodcut of a warrior fighting demons. And it is the warrior priest. And they are, he is driving demons down behind a cross that I got on my arm earlier as well. I think that was six or seven years ago now. And that theme is then of a warrior priest, of a saint fighting demons, driving them back down under the cross with blood going up and down my arm, representing the blood of Christ, the blood of violence, the blood of life that then concludes on my chest, which is a crane chasing a little fish, which is my fifth child. And then over that and around that, because it's the hilt of a samurai sword, it forms the, the hilt of a samurai sword. At the heart of that then is a sun with the rays shining out, brightening the fish and the crane, giving light to the blood that caps on the top, the waves cap on the top of my shoulder blade. And all of that is to say that my tattoos mean something, whether I knew it or not. And now that I know the symbolism, the theology of my tattoos, I can explain it all to you today. But what is at the heart of that? What is it that motivates me to go through so much pain to decorate my body with these images and these colors? What is it that draws me back again and again to undergo this kind of pain? There is something about inflicting pain on the body. It becomes a way of exhibiting endurance through signs, through blood, through cuts, through bruises, through tattooing, through piercings. Wounding the self is a way to experience certainty, actually. I don't know if you're aware of that. But pain is a way to ground you in the here and the now that proves that you exist, that you're real. Self-inflicted violence fits within a certain paradigm. It's a relationship that we have with our own bodies. It's almost as if we have a relationship with ourselves in a paradoxical sense. And I think that is important because at the present, whether you want to call it postmodernity, modernity, however you want to frame today in the culture, violence, pain, it's a remedy for a society that does not care about your personal history. It does not care that you are fragmented and dissociated from yourself. And yet at the same time, I can speak from experience, violence and self-inflicted violence also perpetuates fragmentation, 
because the wounding of the body, the scarring of the body, it results in a disruption. It disrupts you as an individual because it forces you into yourself, deep, deep into yourself. When I'm being tattooed, the most painful parts of the tattooing, the most sensitive areas, I go deep, deep and almost to a trance-like state. And when Josh says, let's take a break, it takes me five or 10 minutes to come out of that and to be fully cognitive of what is going around, going on around me. And in a way, that's one of the reasons that I enjoy being tattooed so much, because it's a pathway for me into a very deep, deep meditative state. And it strips away my filters, strips away my bullshit, and it reduces me to one point, literally one point, the tattoo needle. And I'm focused on that one point and that pain, and I'm focused on managing that pain, not giving into that pain, and mentally holding on to myself and then going somewhere deep, deep in my own psyche, going deep into myself and just letting whatever happens happen and whatever comes out, come out. The most honest conversations I've ever had in my life are with my tattooist, with Josh. There's been other instances, but consistently, if you're listening to this, Josh, you've gotten the most honest and authentic version of me that I can present to the world. Because when you're in pain, when there is violence being inflicted upon you and you undertake it voluntarily, you can't hide from it. You don't get to back out. You have to go forward and move through it. And thank God, tattooing is something you move through with the tattooist. And if you have a good relationship with your tattooist, you can move through it in trust. It's a very intimate time. It's a very intimate connection to ask someone else to carve into your flesh. And not only to carve something into your flesh, but to carve something into your flesh that says something about you as a human being. And that in that moment of being tattooed, you are pulling yourself together and yet simultaneously fragmenting. You're blowing up the things around you that are bullshit. All the filters that you hide yourself from yourself with. But it also fragments you from society and the narrative of what passes for introspection, self-awareness, self-reflection, violence and conflict, the power of symbols. Undergoing self-inflicted violence causes a fragmentation of the individual for the better, I think, but I think also in some ways for the worse in relation to society. Because by undergoing that self-inflicted violence, you are stepping out of society, so to speak. You are stepping out and saying, I'm putting this book down. This is not the narrative of my life. I don't accept this. And so within then this mythology of redemptive violence, regenerative violence, there's something very important, and it goes to the point of today's topic, which is masculinity. That self-inflicted violence, regenerative, redemptive violence, is important for recovering masculinity. Like vital masculinity, not the mythological toxic masculinity but rather true masculinity, classical masculinity. And that's really why I brought up Fight Club. Whether you read the book or you watch the movie, that's really the core, is this concern for masculinity. So in the book or the movie, if you haven't seen it, the narrator goes to a support group. It's a group meeting for men with testicular cancer named Remaining Men Together to the point of fragmentation. It is here in this, this support group meeting for men that the narrator of the novel listens to these men, and one man in particular, lament the fact that in the case of the one man that he's, just, you know, he's listening to and we're hearing 
this man speak through the narrator's ears. The man laments that his ex-wife just had a baby with her new husband. And then the guys that make up the support group, it illustrates there's the crisis. And the crisis is a crisis of masculinity in America because the men in the support group are not masculine, not at least according to traditional definitions. Now in the movie, what's interesting about this scene is that the lighting is very soft and that the support group then is in contrast to the hard lighting that's focused on the American flag that's hanging at the back of the room. So the men are softly lit, but the flag is lit with a really harsh, bright light. And so as one, uh, I think one woman wrote about this, it's an enduring image of the disenfranchised white man and has become a symbol for the decline of the American way. That scene, that image. And so the men that this narrator meets in Fight Club at the remaining Men Together support group, they represent the cultural loss of masculinity. One of the group's members, his name is Bob. And Bob is a former fitness guru whose steroid use caused him to lose his testicles and in a place to develop, as he calls them, bitch tits as a result of hormone therapy, hormone replacement therapy. And again, to watch the movie, the character is played by Meatloaf. And you'll understand why he calls himself bitch tits. And so while the narrator feels emasculated because of his consumer capitalist drive to buy products he doesn't need and furnish his life with Ikea stuff, the men in the support group represent the physical manifestation of emasculation, of castration, literally. And what it develops then is a kind of masochistic masculinity. It creates these kind of narcissistic, sadomasochistic types that take pleasure in self-flagellation, in hurting themselves. And that then becomes the dominant figure in our culture today. Not on the margins, but at the center of our culture are people who are narcissists and sadomasochists. We see this with politicians. We see this with so many social leaders who rise up and make all of these demands of university faculties and administrations, of political administrations, that we need to change for them. They used to exist on the fringes. They used to be the lunatic fringe, as they were called. Now they have risen to places of power and influence because they are loud, they are shrill and pushy, they are bullies. And because we have by and large allowed them to have their way, this has now come to define culture in America. Narcissism, sadomasochism, and therefore men, they view themselves this way. And yet the violence that happens in Fight Club, this self-inflicted violence, in a way it differentiates Fight Club from other kind of older traditional definition of masculinity in films. If you go back to the 80s, for example, the heyday of macho, masculine action movies, Rambo, Terminator, then you can understand this kind of new sadomasochism where this person portrays himself as a victim while also feeling powerful because of his ability to endure pain. So then pain, as it's depicted, becomes desirable. It's, uh, as one person put it, concealed under the veneer of righteous indignation and willfulness and anger and grief or guilt, repudiated by the would-be heroic male subject, reflexive sadomasochism has become the primary libidinal logic of the white male as a victim. Now, that's a lot of words obviously written by an academic. And having spent far too much time in academia, I can, I can smell bullshit <laughs> right away. But at the core of what um, Saverin says here, I think there's a key point, which is the primary logic of the male, and I don't think it's white males only, I think we have to stop zeroing in on white males alone. One, I think it tends to make us sound like a bunch of white supremacists <laughs> or Aryan Brotherhood wannabes. 
And second of all, I have plenty of friends who are Mexican, Hispanic, Latino, Black, Asian, Indian, Egyptian. I have plenty of friends who are not white males, who are just males, who feel the exact same way. That is, they have been raised to see themselves as victims. They view themselves as victims. And so in Fight Club, then going back to the book, the group hug mentality of the men's support group is the group hug mentality of the early 1990s men's movement. And that movement replaced the kind of raw and uncensored violence of the 1980s and these action movies with Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger and others. And yet in the book then, in Fight Club, what does the narrator do? He turns to violence in an attempt to reawaken senses that have been dulled by a victim-like existence, an emasculated existence. And so Fight Club occurs, it comes into existence, it takes place in the basement of a bar because it's a place where men can experience a true sense of being, of being men. You weren't alive anywhere, anywhere, like you were alive here, the the narrator says, because who you were in Fight Club is not who you were in the rest of the world. The basement arena of the Fight Club provides, it provides a space in which the men in the film can transcend the reality of their lifestyle, their jobs, even their bodies. And so then the narrator in Fight Club demonstrates his understanding of rebirth through violence by describing how after a fight, he says, quote, we all felt saved. Politicians and politics have failed us. Churches and clergy have failed us. Self-help gurus and self-help groups have failed us. The mainstream media and Hollywood have failed us. This is the birthright of Generation X. We have been failed by the pillars of our society. They have used us, manipulated us, targeted us, indoctrinated us, to think of ourselves as victims so that we keep feeding at their troughs and lap up the garbage that they give to us and say, thank you, can I have some more? Thank you, sir, may I have another? But in Fight Club, this isn't 1980s action movie stuff. This is the myth of redemptive violence. Politics, the church, self-help groups, 12-step groups, men's clubs, it's all failed us. They've all failed us because we've ended up with a life we hate, jobs we hate, bodies that we are ashamed of. Now, how do I break free of all that? How do I break free of the programming and indoctrination? How do I break free of the conditioning that I'm supposed to see myself as a victim to be beat on, to be abused and misused? How do I break the narrative? How? I engage in redemptive violence, self-inflicted violence. Go to a jujitsu academy. Go to a Muay Thai academy. Go to an MMA gym. You're going to find a lot of men who are coming in because they feel emasculated, In every aspect of their life, they're suicidal. They abuse drugs and alcohol. They allow their wives and girlfriends to walk all over them, to order them around. They have jobs that they hate. They have lives that are miserable. And they're hoping that jiu-jitsu or Muay Thai or MMA will change that. And for those who stick with it, it does. But what you see in public then is not what you see on the mats or in the cage or in the ring. 
People say sometimes, people that know me say sometimes they're intimidated by me. And I have to laugh at that because they've never seen me in a fight. They've never seen me spar with the other Muay Thai coach on Saturday mornings. They've never heard all of what comes out of me when I am hitting pads. The raw, primal fury that I allow to come out. For me, 9 a.m. on Saturday mornings is an exorcism. 10 a.m. is where I collect myself, and 11 a.m. is where I get pushed past my limits. Everything after that is just gravy. But people who say they're intimidated by me have never seen me completely unleash what's inside of me. Most people never will, because it's not for them. Right? It's not theater. It's not a show. Again, it's an intimate exchange between two people. You know what happens in that exchange? There's no words. There's grunts. There's screams. There's the sound of flesh striking flesh, flesh striking pads. There's something primordial, cleansing, sanitizing about it and that's violence and I think that there are hundreds of thousands of men actually who are dying in quiet desperation for what I have and for what a few others have is that fighting for example it doesn't necessarily allow us to rise above our existence. That's not the point. But rather, it reinforces social order. It reinforces power relationships. Other Muay Thai coach outweighs me by 70 pounds. In a real fight, he would just grab me and crush me like a grape. We both know that. So now we can get on the business, onto the business of training hard and sparring with each other. But I don't for a minute doubt that in a real fight, and he's also got 20 years of experience on me, so, yeah. <laughs> but that doesn't change my attitude toward him. It just makes me appreciate and respect him all the more every time we do spar and we do work together. <laughs> Excuse me. So the second rule of Fight Club, then, is that you do not talk about Fight Club because the first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club because Fight Club is not about winning or losing the basic premise of the fight is that one man will be victorious and one man will not. So what seems to be at war in the, in the narrator statement, in the narrator statement is the fact that what the men in Fight Club are performing is unadulterated virility in its purest form. This is life lived at the edge. As the narrator says, Fight Club was not about winning or losing. That's not the point. Winning or losing, that's for childless games. The men have no protection. They have to rely on their own instincts and their own strength to win the fight. And endurance, then, and the ability to withstand pain become a way by which the individual and his masculinity can be saved. You know, in a lot of jujitsu gyms, when you walk in the door, you'll see a banner that says, leave your ego at the door. I wholeheartedly agree with that philosophy. However, it's a dichotomy because it takes a lot of ego to do that, to go onto those mats day after day and to roll with killers. And there's a lot of ego on the mats. So it's not about kill your ego and have no ego because that would make you a doormat but rather find the right balance between ego and being egoless. Don't use your ego as an opportunity to exploit your own pride, your own hubris, your own arrogance, your own need to prove what a real man you are in this context by beating up on other people. But instead recognize it's ego that drives you to want to do this. It's ego that drives you to want to win. But you can't allow that ego to run free because then you'll hurt your training partners. You'll hurt even your opponent. 
So even on the bleeding edge, you still have to be in control. That's the purpose of practice. That's the purpose of sparring is to locate the edge, go there, but don't go one step beyond it. So the fight scenes in the movie now, they capture how horrific these fights are. This is not a kung fu martial arts type of movie. This isn't the Matrix. This is raw, primal violence. And it's filmed like that. And so if you, you know, if you appreciate cinematography, these fight scenes are amazing because they actually change as the film progresses. In fact, the cinematographer said that at first, the camera is more of an observer of the violence. But as the fights progress throughout the movie, the camera took, takes on more of the point of the view of the fighter. So you're a, a witness, so to speak. A, a, you're at the beginning of the film, and you're an observer. You're a witness. But then as the film progresses and the fights progress, you become more and more a part of the fight so that you come at it now from the point of the view of the fighter. And so therefore, the last fight scene in the movie is the most gruesome fight scene in the movie because you're right there. In fact, the censors forced David Fincher, the director of Fight Club, to take it out of the movie because it was too gratuitous, too graphic. I do think it might be in the director's cut. I can't... I don't know how much worse it gets because in the movie, Angel, that's his name, Angel, played by Jared Leto, Edward Norton, who's the narrator, gets on top of him and beats his face until you can't even recognize him. He beats Angel beyond recognition. And yes, there is a lot of theological symbology there, symbolism. The fighters, they dance around each other. And at various points, then the camera, it uses kind of a medium close-up point of view shot so that we can view the experience and the movement from the perspective of the narrator himself. So then when Edward Norton as the narrator is on top of Angel, the camera looks down on Angel's face as we, the viewer, now are participating with the narrator in beating Angel beyond recognition. It's at root, as Tyler Durden, the narrator's alter ego, says that Fight Club exists and the reason that men seek it out is because we are a generation of men raised by women. There's only one female character in the entire book, Marla Singer. And she is pasty-skinned, she's a chain smoker, and she loves Tyler slash the narrator. But Marla is a threat in the novel, in the, in the movie too, to the narrator because she is a faker. She goes to support group meetings herself. Why? Because as she says, the coffee is free and it's cheaper than a movie. But she's a threat to the narrator and his integrity because she helps reveal to us, the audience, that Tyler and the narrator are the same person. Spoiler alert. So whenever Marla is in the house on Paper Street, she and Tyler Durden never appear in the same room with the narrator at the same time. So she's either in the scene with the narrator or she's in the scene with Taylor, Tyler, but never both of them at the same time. And so through the view of Marla, we, the viewer, get start to get more and more of a sense of this person is fragmented. He is dissociated from himself and that the purpose for Tyler Durden is to help the narrator find his way back to wholeness through violence. That he and Tyler Durden are the same character, same character, same person. So when the narrator confronts Tyler in a hotel room about Marla, she confirms that, yeah, <laughs> Here, this is the problem. Because she says, I've only been intimate with you. And then when he asks, well, what's my name? She says, what do you mean? What's your name? Your name's Tyler Durden. And so now in the book, the narrator, Tyler Durden, 
realizes that Marla's life is in danger because she knows about Project Mayhem. She knows about Fight Club. Now she has to be saved from the very thing that the narrator created. So now he goes from the founder of Project Mayhem and Fight Club to the one who has to save her from his own creation. And so now we enter from, okay, this is the myth of redemptive violence to, okay, now this is the myth of the hero. This is the hero's journey. He was the anti-hero up to this point. But now that he realizes, okay, I am Tyler Durden. Tyler Durden is me. I created Project Mayhem. Now it becomes the hero's journey. So he goes from anti-hero, who is seduced by the nihilism of Tyler Durden, to now the hero and rescuer, because he is now fully himself and aware of who he is and what was happening, what he was doing to himself. So despite the Hollywood ending of the film, which actually differs a lot from Chuck Palahniuk's novel, the order cannot be restored. In the novel, the narrator dies and finds himself in a mental institution in heaven where he muses, we are not special. We are not pieces of crap or trash either. We just are. We just are, and what happens, happens. Whereas in the film, buildings come down. And the narrator says to Marla, you've met me at a very strange time of my life, in my life. You see, there's... Well, actually, I think... The, no, that's... The final lines are, I'm really okay. Trust me. Everything's going to be fine. That's it. The final line is everything's going to be fine. So there's a false sense of complacency, though, implied in these comments, right? Because while the narrator might be healed, there's still a group of what he calls space monkeys eat or wreak havoc on the city, Project Mayhem. And of course, the futility of Tyler's statement at the end of the movie is emphasized by the fact that buildings in front of him ignite and implode and fall to the ground while the narrator and Marla watch. And these falling buildings signify the failure of the masculine corporate world. More importantly, there is no sense that the narrator's masculinity can be restored since he had to kill his masculine counterpart, his virile masculine counterpart, Tyler Durden. So who is he at the end of the movie? Is he Tyler Durden? Is he a virile man? Or will he just become their narrator again? Will he just go back to those men's support groups? See, Fight Club, the book and the movie, is a statement against, it's a counter-proposal to the masculinity that triumphed in the 1980s. For example, the movie Wall Street, where the famous line by Gordon Gekko, right, greed is good, but I don't think that's actually the, the full quote but that's what I remember of it. Because by the 80s, American culture is a, it's a culture based on triumph, on the admiration of power, on status. And there's nothing more important to culture in the 1980s than its symbols of power and status. During the Reagan years, then Ronald Reagan, President Ronald Reagan, the male hard body, in these films represented an effort to re-masculinize the nation after what was widely perceived as the post-Vietnam impotence and the result of a feminized presidency of the Jimmy Carter years and to get government off the backs of the average citizen. Isn't it interesting then, as a side note, that this film, this book, this topic of masculinity has come to the forefront yet again at a time when our president, former president, was not seen as being a manly man, a powerful man, but instead was seen as being very soft. And that Donald Trump became president because he represented a kind of dragon energy, to use a term, and it kind of returned to that 1980s mentality, that kick-ass mentality, power, status, and all of the symbols that go along with it. And that's why this past election has been so 
vitriolic because we have Joe Biden, who is suffering from dementia, in my opinion, and talking with medical professionals. They wholeheartedly affirm my position on this one. He is a shell of a man. He is a weak old man and not competent to be anybody's leader, in my opinion. And Donald Trump, also an old man, but represents himself as a person of power and worthy of power and of status. And this country has been split in half by these two symbols. And so at least half the country, especially the men, have been energized and reinvigorated to say, what the hell happened to me? What the hell happened to us? How did we get to this spot? Who was it that emasculated us? When did this start? How did it happen? How did I let this happen? And how do I stop it so that my sons don't fall victim to it? And then you have the other half that says otherwise. The early 1990s, there was a response to the emasculation that materialized, that manifested itself in the development of men's group. Men's groups led by people like author Robert Bly. Bly wrote this book in 1991. It was called Iron John. And it was a bestseller for weeks and weeks and weeks. And in the book, John Bly exhorts men to, quote, accept that the true radiant energy in the male does not hide in, reside in, or wait for us in the feminine realm, nor in the macho John Wayne realm, but in the magnetic field of the deep masculine. Which, again, is a word soup. <laughs> but see, the problem with these mytho-poetic types of statements and these then men's groups that evolved out of people reading these books by people such as Bly is that the search for the warrior, the savage warrior, the pre-industrialized warrior mentality, it led men's movements to wander through literature of masculinity like tourists. And that is something that I am definitely aware of considering the topic and the genre of this podcast and the other podcasts that I listen to in this genre, is that we become tourists. We read about masculinity. We talk about the warrior mindset, but we treat it like dilettantes. We treat it like tourists, that this is something that we're going to do for a season and then we'll move on to the next thing. That's always the danger with anything, though, is to not take it seriously, but treat it as a novelty, as something that's provocative and titillating, but is no more or less important than any other fad that captures the public's imagination. So to be careful of that, we have to make sure that this whole topic of traditional masculinity and rejecting postmodern definitions of masculinity, embracing a warrior mindset, embracing the better aspects of pre-industrial society doesn't lead us down a path of self-parody. And we end up clowning on each other. Then we're no better than the men's group in Fight Club where all these guys who are literally emasculated, they've had their testicles taken off, sit around and lament the state of their lives. Instead, we end up sitting around in a support group lamenting the fact that we tried to be men once. We tried to be warriors once, but it just didn't work out. So we're all here comforting each other <laughs> after the fact. How tragic would that be? But yet, the problem with these groups is that the search then for the warrior leads men's movements to wander around. They read the literature, they listen to the podcast, they watch the videos, they attend the, the retreats, the weekend retreats, and they're tourists. As if culture was situated in such a way that it's just one more boutique in the marketplace of ideas. It's masculinity, and the warrior mindset is just one more store in the mall. That's the danger. In fact, that's the threat, is that... At a certain point, if enough men become interested in this topic, it will be commodified. 
it will be turned into a brand. It will be marketed to us the same way that grunge was marketed to me in college. There was no such thing as the grunge movement at the beginning. It was just music coming out of Seattle. And then the record industry figured out there was money to be made from it. So then grunge was born. And then you could literally go to the mall and buy grunge clothing while you listen to grunge music (laughs) and so forth and so on. But in Fight Club, at root, the man, the male, has lost faith in his role as a consumer. He wants to experience a real sense of being human, of being alive, of existing. But that can only be achieved through pain. The narrator, whose body has been bloodied and broken by Tyler, which is himself, in the final scene of the film portrays himself as the victim who wants to reverse the damage done by the group he created, Project Mayhem. That's why he tells Tyler, this is too much. This is the dichotomy, though. Is that we are portrayed as victims who inhabit a wounded body. But the question becomes, who inflicted the wounds upon us? Were they self-inflicted or were they put there by society? Because a wounded body represents something. It's the manifestation of a crisis of masculinity. And that's what makes it so real, is that we are bloodied and we are cut and we are scarred. Not over race, not over gender, not over religion, not over politics, but over the battle to recover ourselves as human beings because consumer capitalist culture has reduced us to a demographic, to a nameless, faithless, faceless, faithless consumer. We don't matter. In this corporate industrial world, this techno-socialist surveillance state ruled over by these big tech companies, multinational corporations like Amazon and Walmart, We are not essential if we are not consuming. That's the entire reason we exist is to consume. But that is no way to live. That is the opposite of life. That is simply existence for the sake of existence. We may as well be like those cattle or those sheep or those animals in those massive houses, those massive barns, those slaughterhouses, where they're just penned up and they're have feeding tubes shoved down their throats and then another enema tube shoved up their rectum. Pump the food in, get them fat, pump it out. When they're fat enough, slaughter them. We might as well be one of those. We are those as far as these corporations are concerned. That's all we're good for. And what you see then manifest in culture is exactly that. 46% of Americans look like feed cattle. They look like they've had a hose shoved down their throat and they've been force-fed because they are morbidly obese. They cannot think. They can barely form a sentence. All they know how to do is go to the store, go to the store, buy stuff, consume the stuff, excrete the stuff, go back to the store. There's an entire website entitled People You Meet at Walmart that mocks this whole demographic. We have become self-parody. We have become less than human. We are fragmented as a society because we as individuals are dissociated from ourselves. The media and politicians want us to fight over race, over gender, to keep us distracted from the truth. We don't even know who we are. So why the hell are we fighting with each other? We don't even know who we are when we look in a mirror. And yet other people are telling us, no, your problem isn't the fact that you don't know who you are. It's not that we've indoctrinated you for 150 years so that you believe you're a victim and that you need mommy and daddy to take care of you, however that manifests itself. 
No, don't pay attention to that. Don't pay attention to the feeding tube we're shoving down your throat. Don't pay attention to that. Don't pay attention to the fact that we've penned you in and made you say thank you for your slavery. Don't pay attention to that. Look at that black guy right there. He's your problem. Oh, look at that woman. She's the reason that you're in this kind of pain. Look at those people over there. Look at how they vote. They're your enemy. They want to oppress you. While they shove a feeding tube down your throat. While they demand that you pump poison, their poison that they manufacture, into your system so that they can offer you a cure to the poison they created. The last thing that society wants today is for men and women to be real men and real women, to embrace traditional gender roles and definitions. They don't want women to be feminine. They They don't want men to be masculine. And they most certainly don't want us to think for ourselves and to know ourselves. That's why you'll notice violence and conflict is so vilified and demonized at present by our society and its leaders. The last thing that they want is for us to discover the truth about ourselves. So the only way, within the context of Fight Club, for a man to discover what it means to be a man, to discover real masculinity in this crisis of masculinity, is to engage in violence. To throw off feminized narcissism, to throw off sadomasochism, to throw off the schizophrenic nature of reality as it has been controlled and created and managed for us. That in the wounding, in the pain, in the conflict, a man will discover the truth about himself and the truth will set him free. And yet simultaneously, Fight Club is a critique of violence. The whole movie is just a dichotomy. As if salvation can come through violence and pain. Well, it can just not our self-inflicted violence and pain. At the end of the day, my tattoos all point back to violence and pain. They symbolize violence and pain, but not the violence and pain that I have inflicted upon myself over the years. If you were to look at my tattoos, you would know nothing about my addictions. You would know nothing about my suicide attempts. You would know nothing about my self-destructive behavior in the past. You would know nothing about me in the present, personally speaking. What would you learn if you asked me about my tattoos? You'd actually learn about my faith. Because my tattoos are a symbol of my faith. That I do believe that violence and pain is salvific. It is redemptive. I just believe that it's Jesus and the violence and the pain that he suffered that redeems me, that saves me from a world that would emasculate his creation, this man. And that through the violence and the pain of his crucifixion, it sets me free in my own violence and pain to look to him for my salvation. But that's the dichotomy of being a Christian for me, is that there is something cleansing, there is something sanitizing about violence and pain. That's why I do it. That's why I love to fight. That's why I didn't feel like a person, a whole person, until I started in jiu-jitsu. I lived my whole life, as I've said before, I lived my whole life being one person, but desperately believing that I was somebody else. But living in the fear that that was just wishful thinking. So then to do what I did and to have it revealed to me that actually the person that I always thought I was, that I believed that I could be, was actually the real me. It didn't cause me to throw up my hands in in frustration and, and yell at the sky and lament the fact that I was 45 before I ever got there. There's no regrets. 
there is just gratitude and joy and the satisfaction of, of knowing who I am. Not fragmented, but as a whole person. And I think that's ultimately, if I can get on my preacher's soapbox for a moment, that ultimately is why Fight Club ends in heaven of all places. Because even though Chuck may not be a Christian, he knows that there's something more than just the pain and the violence of the present moment of the flesh. There's metaphysical redemption and salvation waiting for us. He just doesn't know how to get there because he doesn't know Jesus. But that is the dichotomy of our lives, is that we go around trying to find ourselves, however we choose to do that. And maybe for some of us in the present tense, we discover that it's actually through self-inflicted violence, through being a part of the fight game, maybe serving in the military or in law enforcement, whatever it is, however you get there, we discover the truth about ourselves. And in a way, it fragments us. It does, it blows us up. It's like a grenade going off. And inside of us, it's like shrapnel. But at the same time, it pulls us back together. So we're in this constant state of flux where we're pieces and yet we're whole simultaneously. It's not something that you could pin down on a, according to the laws of physics, that we are fragmented. We're pieces of shrapnel and yet we're whole at the same time. But for me anyways, what pulls it all together is the violence and pain of the cross. Knowing that no matter what I do, it's always going to point me back to that moment of violence and pain 2,000 years ago. And that my violence and pain is my cry for God to answer me and to give meaning to my pain and to tell me, to reveal to me that the way that society wants me to be is not the way that God created me to be and that the purpose of life is not discovering the truth about myself in relation to the Ikea catalog or what the talking heads on TV tell me, but what God tells me. And that the definition of biblical manhood and the traditional definition of manhood are very similar, if not one and the same. And so, of course, in a post-modern world, Attacks on masculinity, therefore, are an attack on the Bible and God, the family, definitions of male and female. If society is going to attack, if the mechanisms of popular culture are going to attack masculinity, then they must attack God. They must attack the church. They must attack the Bible. They must attack any philosophy, any author, any philosopher, anyone who talks about masculinity in terms other than victimhood, other than emasculation, other than the fragmentation of the self. Because in this world, violence has no ultimate purpose. Because we live in a society that is nihilistic. It believes in nothing except consume, digest, excrete, repeat. And it leaves us empty. It leaves us fragmented inside and out. It leaves us with nothing. And that is what the narrator recognizes in Fight Club. He recognizes the limits of Tyler Durden's nihilism. And so at the same time that Fight Club is saying, we need to recover true masculinity, and this is how we do it, it's also warning us that there are limits and that the nihilism that we seek to escape through self-inflicted violence can lead us to nihilism because ultimately that violence will not be our salvation. It can only point us to a higher salvation, a higher violence, a higher pain suffered by God. So if I were to write Fight Club, that would be the final chapter. The narrator finds religion. <laughs> he discovers Jesus. But that 
at the end of the book, really, what it's about is saying to each man, you need to grow up. You need to take charge of your self, your individual self, instead of blaming society for making you feel like you've lost your masculinity, like you've lost your balls. Because a victim's mentality blames everybody else for its problems. Who took your balls? Well, it was my wife, or it was my boss, or it was this group, or it was this team, or whoever. No. If you want to be a man, if you want to be an individual, if you want to be able to protect and defend others, you want to be able to care for others and provide for others, you've got to stop blaming society. Stop blaming politicians. Stop blaming the church. Stop blaming men's groups. Stop blaming everybody for making you feel like you lost your balls. They're still there. They're hanging between your legs. They didn't go anywhere. So take a good hard look in the mirror the next time you get out of the shower and ask yourself, who really emasculated me today? Was it my wife or did I give my wife my balls? Was it my boss or did I just give those away to him? Was it the party? Was it the team? Or did I volunteer these up as a sacrifice? We have been indoctrinated to believe that we are victims of forces outside of our control so that we ask those same forces to save us. They created the disease and now they want us to ask them to give us the vaccine. There is only one person that can get your balls back and that's you. And if you're not willing to go out and get them, then you're going to end up being a nihilist again and believing in nothing. So it's on you. It's on you. If you want to be a man, if you want to recover your masculinity, then do it. Do it for yourself. Do it for your family. Do it for your friends, your teammates, your coworkers. Do it for yourself, though, first. Figure out how to repair the damage that's been done. Remake yourself. Rebuild yourself. Stop feeling like you lost something. You didn't lose anything. You gave it away. And now it's time to take it back. So go read Fight Club. Go watch Fight Club. It's a fantastic movie. David Fincher is definitely one of my top three directors ever. But go think. Think about this. Think about the message of the movie. Think about what the narrator says, what Tyler Durden says, what all the other characters say. Think about the ending, whether you agree or disagree. Because if anything, the movie Fight Club, let alone the book, will really act as a mirror. And it'll hold itself up in front of you and say, oh, so who are you? Who are you? And then make up your mind. Are you going to be a man or not? It's your choice. God made you to be a man, so be a man. If you don't know what it means to be a man, well, guess what? You're listening to this podcast, so that means something. There's plenty out there. Plenty of places you can go. Just don't be a tourist. Commit yourself to it. Make it your life. No one's going to hand it to you. No one's going to pat you on the back for being a man, a masculine man. It's very anti-culture right now. It's very countercultural right now. It's very subversive to want to be a man, to be masculine. It's very subversive and countercultural to want to be a feminine woman, to be a nurturer. So the point is, this isn't an affectation. This isn't me ranting and raving because when I go home, my wife is going to, you know, scream at me and threaten me and I'm going to say, yes, honey, okay, honey. I've seen those guys. They get up on stage and they bluster and they blow smoke and they talk about what masculine men they are and they challenge other guys to punch them in the stomach. That's not this. That's not me. You know that. But I do see where things are going. And I think you do too right now. And if you're listening to this, you probably don't like where things are going. So figure out what you need to do to recover your masculinity, to be a man. 
not so that you can maybe go get in a fight in the basement of a bar this Saturday night, but maybe so that you can compete in a tournament or get into a cage or a ring or maybe go out into the woods, go on an adventure, challenge yourself, challenge yourself with other men, push yourself, ask yourself, can I protect my family? Can I defend them if shit goes down? Do I know who I am? Do I know what's been taken away from me? Do I know how to get it back? Society and the people within society only have the power to emasculate us if we allow them to, if we give them that authority. So take the authority back. Take it away. Don't let them do it to you anymore. In short, be a man. Be kind, be compassionate, be a protector, defend others, stick up for others, but be a man. And I guarantee you, you'll be better for it. All right, that's all I got for today. So thank you so much for listening to me. Today, talk about this subject and to go on these different rabbit trails, I'm going to include a link to a great video called Fight Club and Nietzsche, Overcoming Emasculation. It's probably the best breakdown of the movie I've ever heard. And I've listened to a lot of critiques of Fight Club. I'm fascinated by the movie. I'm fascinated by the philosophy behind the movie. So I'm going to include this video. It's 25 minutes and 26 seconds, but it is well worth your time listening to it. I guarantee it. So I'll include that, like I said, in the show notes. Otherwise, as always, I got the merch. Christmas is coming up. I tell you what, Everybody from now on who goes to Anchor FM to support the show and clicks that support button and pledges however much a month you want to pledge to helping me and the show and the gym, I'll send you a free t-shirt and a free sticker. So if you want to give a dollar or $10 or 20 bucks a month to help support the show and all that I do here, I'll send you a t-shirt. I'll send you a sticker. You just sign up and then give me the high sign and I will get that stuff out to you as soon as possible. All right. So we'll do that with the merch from now on. Otherwise, I will talk to you Wednesday for the midweek debrief. All right. Be good, weirdos. We'll talk to you soon. Peace.